Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast, Floyd's Rising. I'm Sabretooth, I collect NFTs for a living, and with me is Kizu, who's a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk about the business of creating, collecting, and analyzing NFTs. We interview artists, collectors, and other interesting people in the NFT space. Enjoy the show. Welcome everyone to another episode of Floor is Rising with Kizu and myself today is Dees. He is a extremely influential NFT collector um, and he regularly hosts uh, Twitter spaces, uh, audio hangouts. He's uh, recently uh, part of the Fractional the Art project um, and he's joining us today on the podcast. First, Question, how did you get into NFTs? My NFT journey has been quite a while in the making. First off, I got into crypto in 2017, got my first taste of like massive gains from shit coins going up. And uh, I didn't know what an NFT was in 2017. I remember CryptoKitties were really popular. And at one point, people complained about them breaking Ethereum. And that was the first NFT I ever heard of. And I kind of just ignored it. And then, you know, you can kind of go all the way to the pandemic in 2020 to when I started caring more about like self-custody and using my own Ethereum wallet and all that stuff. And that summer of the pandemic, I got into like Uniswap shit coins. And I remember like toward the end of that Uniswap run where like everything was popping off five, 10 X a day. DeFi uh, summer. Yep. <laughs> DeFi summer. My friend was telling me to buy a zombie punk and that I need to look at the punks. And he bought a zombie. And I told him, like, you know, I just can't justify spending. At the time, it was like 15 grand for a zombie. <laughs> and I told him at the time, I'm like, I can't do that. I'm just going to buy a four. Um, so I bought my first NFT in September of 2020. So it's been only about a year. But um, I quickly realized that punks were kind of like the party hats of the crypto ecosystem so like if you ever played runescape or you know what a party hat is there's these items in the game that came out in like 2002 they never came out again they're completely useless outside of flexing and like that's exactly what i thought a punk was i was like oh wow this is like a party hat but for crypto people who are like going to be crypto rich rather than people rich in the video game runescape so that was kind of what led me down the rabbit hole and what started my NFT journey. I wanted to ask you, though, since Punks was kind of your first NFT project, and if you look at the, the wallets, you're, you're quite an active, not only a participant in the CryptoPunks Discord, but you're quite an active like trader, meaning buying and, and, and selling Punks um, over the past year. Can you talk a little bit about that um because you know not a lot of people choose to sort of trade punks a lot of people just kind of buy them and, and hold them but you've sort of been a quite active trader in in punks can, can you talk a bit about that i guess decision or how you how you look at it and 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 just how you've seen that punks market evolve i guess over the past year i love trading punks i still do but on a slightly bigger time frame one thing that I realized early on is that like there was no way I was going to be able to get all the punks I wanted with just like buying and holding and that I was going to have to flip to make money to get the ones I wanted. And 
I have spent a lot of time merchanting <laughs> in RuneScape and like it, it kind of feels like a natural extension of merching high-end, very illiquid items with like a larger spread or margin. And I got into flipping punks because the first one I bought, I just like didn't like it. So I sold it and I was like, wow, that was like a click. I don't remember what it was, like 1.2 ETH or something. And it had me thinking like, wow, I should like be looking at these over shit coins because when you're flipping a punk, you know, you have the downside risk of the market, but it feels relatively safe when you get good entries. And it's a lot harder now. So like, how has the market changed since then? Back when I was flipping punks more often, you were able to sit in the Larva Labs Discord and just watch the bot and then react quickly based off of like gut information. Now there's a lot of bots who watch the mempool who are executing transactions before the punks Discord even sees it. And there's a lot of competition and like, you can't even bid on punks because if you're going to get a low ball that's accepted, a bot will just front run it anyway on the acceptance transaction and take the punk from you. So it's like not worth the time to flip on low time frames anymore, unless you catch a rare opportunity that a bot doesn't arbitrage automatically before you're able to act, but you can still take, you know, some more swing type positions where you're buying a dip and you think you're going to sell it for more in a couple months. So that's kind of what I do now. And I focus more on, you know, not, Hey, can I quickly flip this for 5% or 10% of the basis? But now it's like, okay, like what is a 50% or a hundred percent game look like? And how does that play out? Is this the time to uh, try to take one of those positions? So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now with flipping punks, but I really enjoy, like, even if I only own a punk for a day, it's like, I still feel like I owned it. And I look through my history and seeing the provenance of all the ones I touched, like, it makes me happy. Tell us about the the project that, that you're with, um, Fractional Art, and I guess specifically, probably the most well-known aspect of that project is the largest, well, I think the, the most expensive NFT ever, which is the Fractionalized Doge NFT. Maybe you can... Um, Talk us through both the history of fractional art and, and also the history of that NFT and, and how did you guys get that onto the platform and how did it get so big? Yeah, so uh, touching on fractional, I joined the fractional team back in early to mid-July. Um, I had a normie job and I knew I was going to go full-time crypto for a few months at that point. And I was really just being patient with opportunities and waiting for something that felt like I couldn't say no to. And after talking to Andy about what they were working on at Fractional, it seemed like a no-brainer to work with them and try to help build out this community. The main function of Fractional.art is to turn an ERC721 or an NFT into ERC20 tokens, which are tradable and usable like any other ERC-20 token. Right now, the Doge NFT, I've never seen any NFT like this. It's trading at a $257 million implied valuation, which is just crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's the most expensive NFT in the world. So, Yeah, <laughs> and you can't buy it out unless you want to lay down uh, $75.6 billion. <laughs> the reserve price is ridiculous because they don't want it to be bought out unless like Elon decides uh, he needs it. But the way we 
got that is if you go back, I believe it was around the end of May, beginning of June, the original lady named, I might watch her name, but it's Atsuko Sato. She released a few NFTs of the dope on, I think it was Foundation. And one of them included like the original meme picture she took. And PleaserDAO, which is just a group of collectors contributing Ethereum together to collect like what they think are very important um, NFTs, they picked it up for, you know, at the time it felt like a lot, but in hindsight, it was a steal, right? It was under 2000 Ethereum. Um, and Pleaser had the idea of fractionalizing it to kind of like figure out what they can do with the community, give back and make the most popular meme or arguably the most popular meme. I think you could argue that Pepe might be more popular than Doge, but I think the Doge coin and the Shiba coins and all the different derivatives may solidify Doge as a, a more popular meme. But anyway, you know, they fractionalized it for everybody. They did a MISO auction for the initial liquidity so that, you know, people could wait 24 hours, basically, look at the implied value and then decide like, hey, is this good for me to get some? And yeah, now it's, you know, it's been trading kind of crazily. Like I've seen it as low as 180 million implied and I've seen it as high as like 500 million. So it's been a little volatile, a little crazy, but um, fun to watch for sure. Like I think the Doge meme is a great example of how fractional can really change collecting. And it shows like, okay, when one group of people buy something, uh, and only they collect it, it's not worth the premium that it is when everybody can collect it. In the history of art collecting, it's always been like, who's the highest bidder, right? You know, there's always an underbidder that's pissed off because he or she didn't get it in the end. And when more, when almost an unlimited number of people have access or can be given the chance to collect it, how do you think that changes the psychology of collecting? And do you think that that actually boosts the value of NFTs? From my perspective as a collector, and it was one of the things that made me bullish on the idea of fractionalized NFTs in general, is that I would rather own a percent of a one-on-one rather than like an addition. So like if there was an addition of 100 or fractionalized piece, and I could own 1% of the fractionalized piece or own one of the 100 editions. Like I've always been the type, since I heard about the fractionalization component to err on the side of like, well, I'd rather just own 1% of the whole in the case that like someone buys out the whole and then, you know, my 1% is worth 1% of the buyout. Whereas like with the addition, it doesn't feel to me like it's as unique of an NFT because there's 50 of them even though like I only own 1% of that fractional piece, like it still feels better. And I don't know if that's the consensus or that's just my special way of thinking about it. But one of the big things about fractional collecting that gets me excited is we see a bunch of users in the space who they come in and they might have like one Ethereum or less than one Ethereum. And they don't really like they go on Twitter, they look up some NFT stuff and they're like, okay, like a four punk is 350 grand. I can't afford that. They're like, okay, a four squiggle is 
35 grand. I can't afford that. And then they start going through like board apes and toads and cats. And it's like, wow, I can't buy any of this. And then they go down the list and it's like, okay, I can buy like, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to call out any project. So I'm just going to say like stoned animal project number 69 is available for 0.3 ETH and I can buy that. And that's about it. And I think like from the fractional component side, it's a way to open up all of the blue chip NFTs to any collector so that even if they're putting in a small amount of capital for collecting, they can still get the blue chips and not like have to take a riskier collecting approach into projects that, you know, may not even be around. Like, I don't think punks are going anywhere. I don't think squiggles are going anywhere. I don't think apes and that stuff are going anywhere. But like, I, we see these PFP projects that, you know, could just give up if the traction doesn't sustain itself. Like we saw with Ethlings, which is a uh, project that came out and it did a lot of, I thought, interesting stuff, but they couldn't really get a solid community around it. And they came out with a blog post that just said like, hey, our metrics are not improving. We feel like we're wasting our time. So we're not going to develop this any further or enjoy your NFTs. And I think we're going to see a lot of other NFT projects go down that similar path over the next six months to a year. So Thick Fractional helps people get exposure to like blue chips that are just going to, I mean, the, the, the flip side of that too, is if you're collecting blue chips, like your upside is capped. It's not as good as buying that point three project that could turn into like a five E four. Right. But your, your downside is also capped. Like uh, blue chips aren't going to zero. I mean, that they're still certainly, they're not immune to volatility, but they're not nearly as volatile, I think is the floor profile picture project. So that's kind of how I look at fractional collecting and collecting philosophy and like what we're trying to do at fractional in terms of just making any NFT really accessible to anybody. Um, that's kind of the goal. Deez, I want to get your take on how you see the actual fractionalization space itself in that, you know, fractional.art sort of launched recently, but then there's other projects like, like PartyBid, like uniquely, like the Niftex with an E. Do you see it as a competitive between all these projects and, or, and, and where each particular project has a particular like angle on it or how, how do you see the sort of the the to put it broadly the nft fractionalization sort of ecosystem or space yeah so it's really early and um before i knew of fractional and before i joined the team i was well aware of uniquely and niftex and as a potential user from both a collecting side and a curating side like i didn't want to use either of their platforms because of how clunky the buyout mechanics were. And like, I didn't really fully understand Uniquely's token farming situation. And when Andy described Fractional to me, I was like, wow, this is like way more simple, like especially the buyout. Uh, basically the way the buyout works Fractional is like 50% of the token holders need to have a vote on a reserve price. Then there's just a live auction at that reserve price ready for anybody to come bid. And there's no way to like veto that reserve. So like somebody comes in and the reserve price on a piece is a thousand ETH and they lay down a thousand ETH. Like there's going to be an auction that happens and it locks in the thousand ETH into the contract until another high bid comes in. And basically at the end of expiration, whether it's between three and 14 days, uh, the NFTs bought out and then the token holders of the fractions can redeem the Ethereum for them. 
And I really liked how simple it was. Like with Niftex and Uniquely, you have to own a majority of the tokens and there's a vote and it can get shot down and it's a long process. So that was a big thing for me where it was like, okay, they're you know really focused on the users. Um, seasons, I'm not, I need to do more research on. I think they just launched or are in the process of launching, but I'm not 100% sure how they work. I think right now what we're seeing is a bunch of different fractional platforms trying a bunch of different fractional mechanisms and we're seeing what the market thinks is best. So in that sense, like, I mean, they're definitely the competitors, right? But we all kind of offer our own different pros and cons and we'll see kind of what the market decides to do there. Um, one thing you mentioned with PartyBid, they're not a competitor in any sense. We actually work together with PartyBid. PartyBid is a way for a group of people to trustlessly pull Ethereum together to bid on NFT auctions and win it together. And if they win it, it is automatically fractionalized on fractional.art and people can claim the tokens and do anything they could do with any other fractional vault. So we actually work together and I think it's awesome. Going back to what I said about one-on-ones versus additions, like I really do think like a party bid model of a one-of-one and group ownership is going to be the way it goes instead of like addition sizes. I think it just makes more sense from a both a like position allocation perspective, because like if you're buying an addition, it's a set price. If you're joining a party bid, you could literally join with as little Ethereum as you want, but it has to be gas sensible, right? Like you don't want to just put a dollar of Ethereum in and spend $30 in gas. Like that just doesn't make sense. But other than that, like nothing is really stopping you from putting in as little as you want, whereas an addition still does have a price. And I have collected some additions on HEN. I think you're right that additions are way more prominent there and the barrier to entry is super low. But I feel like the additions just have a, a capped upside the, the one-of-ones don't have, personally. So, so what I find interesting is that, you know, the two largest NFT ecosystems, the largest is Ethereum, which on the art side is primarily based on one-of-ones because the platforms that publish the art is mostly focused around one-of-ones, right? So we're talking about super rare Makes place foundation. They're all like based around one of ones, and and all the additions are more just kind of like lead generators into into selling sort of high quality, unique one of ones, and, and and that's sort of influenced the entire Ethereum artist ecosystem. On the other hand, the second largest NFT ecosystem is Tezos, which is Hen, and their ecosystem is mostly focused around additions. Right? There's there are some one of ones, but you know ninety. X percent is is mostly additions. And I think you're right. Like they are less expensive than Ethereum. Well, I would say like the Beeple of, of Tezos, and you can check out our original um, episode for the listeners. Um, we did an episode on, on John Carroll. <laughs> His additions are are now sort of approaching, they're now like additions of his of 25 are now approaching somewhere in the region of uh, 25 to 30,000 USD. So like the prices are getting up there. So like, I don't know which one is the right or the, the, the best way, but I just have a feeling that like some people just can prefer one, some people can prefer the other and no one's really going to win out. Like it's just like, it's just going to be, you know, whatever, whatever you prefer. What are the sort of the future plans for, for, for fractional? You know, what do you think is uh, 
fractionalization looks like in six months, 12 months um, in an NFT space? One of the things coming out that I can say is that uh, we're going to have the ability to turn ERC-721s into editions themselves or 1155s that are you know, tradable on OpenSea and displayable in a gallery. I think one of the things we missed early on with Fractional is really realizing like our average user coming from NFTs has very little knowledge in terms of like how the DeFi primitives work, like Uniswap, SushiSwap, what's a DEX, what's a liquidity pool, you know, how does the Uniswap Ethereum range work? A lot of that stuff just is like you're trying to teach people calculus, but they don't know multiplication. And that kind of feels like the problem. Another thing too, we also realized is like when you own a fractionalized DRC20, it doesn't always feel like you're collecting it, like you're collecting an NFT. And I think that's because it just doesn't show up in OpenSea and it doesn't show up in like, um, say you're making a gallery and on cyber and you want to display your fractionally owned NFT, but you can't like display the ERC20 token. So we've been working and testing a early version of like, what does fractional look like with the ability to turn your ERC721 into an 1155? And like, how does that voting work for the reserve price? And how does the thumbnail displayed so that number one, you clearly know it's a fractional NFT, but number two, you clearly see that it's the underlying nft that's important and you can show it off in a collection so i think that's going to be the first big thing in the next like three to six months where you're going to have different fractionalization options after that you know maybe multi-chain or uh layer two scaling or you know supporting fractionalization of stuff on tezos and stuff on solana or stuff on you know other blockchains and how does that look like right and then for l2 like how can we lower the gas fees and make it as low of a barrier of entry as possible. And that kind of goes along with the, L, uh, the other L1s too. Like if you're using Solana or Tezos, the barrier to entry is drastically smaller than if you're using Ethereum right now. So those are kind of the big things in the next six months on my mind. Zooming out more than six months is, is really hard to, <laughs> for, it's really hard for me to even like start thinking about like what's going to happen after six months because the space changes so much. And if you zoom out, like I've only been in NFTs for a year, so it's hard for me to have a long-term view on where this stuff is going when like, I'm still so new myself. I feel like a lot of people will say like, Oh no, you're an OG. Like I I feel like I'm brand new. I feel like I'm learning more every day. And I feel like with the knowledge I have, there's just still so much to, to dive into that. I'm still a beginner. Let's talk about that. The space is always changing. Um, I, I wanted to maybe get your perspective of like what what is something that you've learned that's been a big learning for you over the past you know month or or two um, in NFTs, and maybe you can you can share that um, with us. A big learning for me is to spend my imagination on the upside of appreciation of these assets. Like I. Never thought when I'm into the squiggle for $35 that like it would be worth what it is today. And I had sold a lot of stuff early because in my mind, I was still kind of scarred from the 20 
18 year where I had like done well in 2017 and then lost everything I made in 2018. So when I started seeing that um, prices were getting what I thought to be crazy back in like July before August even happened, I took a, a bit off the table just to be comfortable. And then like, as soon as I did that, I ended up like going on vacation for a week in August and like Visa buys a punk, fucking Vincent Van Dove spends $10 million on art box and like all this shit happened where the prices just went to levels I didn't think were possible. And for me, I really learned to like keep an open mind and not just be so like honestly traumatized from 2018, but not be like, I, I want to manage risk really well. Like that's something that was the biggest lesson I learned in 2018 was like, what is risk management? Cause I was this, I would call myself like this degenerate stoner gamer. Um, but that's basically what I was. And when I got an NFTs, it was like my risk management had come from small stakes, daily fantasy sports and like trading items in video games. And that wasn't a great foundation for dealing with like a 80% decline in value over six months while you're leverage trying the long shit. <laughs> um, not to, to go down that rabbit hole too much, but it really just like, I didn't realize how the NFT market could be so different than the shitcoin market. And I don't want to sit here and say like NFTs are up only, but with the grail stuff, when I say grail, I think of like punk grail ringer grail fidenza these very you know like 500 plus ethereum type pieces like uh, an x copy glyphs like all of those grail items i think are say say ethereum dumps 50 percent tomorrow versus usd I, I think those grail items will hold up a lot better in usd than ethereum like the token will but on the flip side, I think like if Ethereum was to go to 10K, the Ethereum prices of the Grails would would dip a little bit, at least in the short term, relative to ETH, because like the massive appreciation you would get on the USD side would, I think, just cause a bunch of people to take profit. Uh, a lot of people coming in seem to be valuing things in NFT land a bit more on the USD side than I would have guessed before, like talking to big whale collectors. And seeing them type out like dollar values instead of Ethereum values is what started to make me realize, oh, hey, like they're not thinking like I am where one ETH equals one ETH and they can just buy whatever, but they're also thinking about the USD prices. So it's kind of been a learning experience for me to shift from just thinking only about Ethereum to also thinking about the different USD scenarios. What do you attribute like this kind of expansion of the prices that you thought possible? Do, do you think it's the new people coming to the space? Do you think that people have formed different thesis on, on what makes NFT valuable? That's that's made valuations like way beyond what a lot of people thought so, was possible. What, what do you think? I think a few things have happened. I think we've seen some crypto natively rich people come in and just sink money into these limited supply projects, whether it's, you know, Fidenza's ringers, pumps, whatever, knowing or thinking that it's a, a sound long-term investment and maybe diversification from their other crypto holdings. But we've also seen, and I'm not going to dox the people, but I'll just say that there's been multiple billionaire, like traditional art collectors who have come in and bought 
multiple thousands of Ethereum worth of the rarest, like Grail, Fidenzas, uh, Death Beeps, and more of the generative stuff. I think I didn't realize at first, too, how paradigm shifting marrying generative art with blockchain really is. I think Snowfro is a, a big visionary when it comes to that. And really, the reason I got art blocks in the beginning anyway was just because, like, I knew Snowfro from Punk's Discord, and he was the nicest guy in the Discord. Like, not even joking, the dude has a heart of gold and was just, like, taking his time to answer all of my dumb questions back in, like, October when he had no idea who I was and I had no idea who he was. And when he went to Artbox, it was just like, okay, like, I'm following and minting whatever you do because you're a good dude, man. Like, I just have faith in whatever you do. But now it's to the point where, like, I'm seeing his vision more than just, like, oh, I like you as a person who I know is good vibes. But now it's like, wow, like, these traditional art collectors are seeing the same vision that you laid out last year. And they are basically saying, like, we think you're right. Or they're putting money where their mouth is and saying, like, hey, we're going to collect this because we do think this is a new paradigm. And I didn't appreciate that until August, probably. So in keeping with the, the learning theme, what's what's something that an opinion on, on NFTs that you hold that you think is a pretty contrarian or minority opinion that, that you think probably the majority of people would disagree with you? Like, is there any opinions on NFTs you hold that are, that are like that? Spicy. <laughs> I think like I, I've more so always been on the collectible side of NFT more so than like the one-on-one art. And I think, just the upside in collectibles is still higher than one of one art and the hit rate is higher as well. So like, I don't know if that's contrary. I don't think that's contrarian because the market clearly, I mean, it's, as a whole yeah. cares more about profile pictures than one-on-one art. So like, I don't know if I'd call that contrarian, but um, I talked to a lot of artists who feel like it's a slight to them. And I just try to explain to them, like from a speculating point of view, it is, easier to take positions in more liquid collections that could rapidly appreciate faster than most one-on-one art uh, and trying to articulate it in a way that doesn't come off as like offensive or like you don't want to collect one-on-one art but like I, I have an extensive one-on-one art collection right it's not like I, I don't collect one-on-one art but when I buy one-on-one art I assume that the ethereum I put into that art is just burnt like as soon as I buy the NFT and I'm just buying the NFT because I like it. I like the artist and I want to display it, um, not because I want to flip it or sell it. Whereas with almost any profile picture project I own, there's there's prices at which I would sell it gladly. And I have those in my mind. And some of those are short-term, some of those are medium-term, some of those are long-term, but there's an exit strategy. Whereas with one of one art, there's no exit strategy. My exit strategy is like, I'm going to build a virtual museum of my favorite stuff. So I don't even know if that's controversial, but that's just how I, I look at it. And the, comparing the two, uh, we've seen a lot more action from big whales on the collectible slash like generative side than we have on the one-on-one side. And we're just starting now, I think, to see a potential one-on-one rush think we're seeing that with like these X copies that have recently gone as well as a few of these recent auctions and I think Starry Night is kind of spearheading that shift where they've come out and 
they haven't bought any punks or anything. They're just buying like super rare one ones and generative stuff. So let me put my own spicy take on top of Deez's spicy take. Um, <laughs> I think that, um, I mean, obviously, basically the art art, so to speak, isn't doing as well as the collectibles, right? Whether it be generative art, whether it be profile pictures, I mean, they're just doing way better, like way better, <laughs> like undeniably better. And I think most people think that that will change, right? Most people think like, okay, you got artists who are creating art who are going to be here for a long time and that will, and, and that will shift and people will gravitate towards that. And then these profile pictures are kind of like a flash in a pan. The most popular phrasing NFTs is like 99% of them will go to zero and, you know, there'll be some sort of rotation. My take on this is that this might not be the case that all these profile pictures that people think are going to go to zero. I personally don't think they're going to go to zero. I think a huge majority of them will survive and thrive because and, and and the person who changed my thinking on this is, was was I saw an interview with uh, Ree Myers, who's uh, one of the oldest blockchain artists. Um, he was doing stuff on Counterparty and Bitcoin way back, and and you know he he had a you know a, a phrase on on profile picture that kind of made me think. And he said like the art of portraiture was dead, right? So, you know, we're talking about the Da Vinci's the, and all the people who were painting portraits, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago, but like it was dead because there was no innovation in it and no one was doing anything and everyone just kind of moved on, right? It was like a dead art. And then, you know, <laughs> NFTs came along and CryptoPunk sort of did the profile picture. And then, you know, this year, just because profile pictures on Twitter, just every man and his dog started putting out profile picture, you know, things. Most of them cash grabs, but that doesn't, you know, that doesn't really matter in the sense that it's basically revived portraiture as an art form, essentially, like completely from the dead. Something that was dead, it's completely revived it. And so I think in time, a lot of this shit that people call cash grabs and just like stuff that will go to zero will actually be seen as leaders of a new type of art. And I think we're already seeing it now that instead of you know collectors rotating to the one-of-one art those one-of-one artists are rotating to collectibles right i mean there's so many artists that are now just releasing or about to release their own collectible series and and i think that's going to accelerate i I think in time every single artist will have their own collectible series and and that's the rotation that's going to happen so that's that's kind of my spicy take on top how do you feel about collections with no inherent rarity and gambling aspect on the mint so what i mean by that would be like i think the best example no not even i think the best example is uh justin aversana's twin flames where the floor on those is over 100 it's 140 ethereum there's 100 pictures he sold them all for half an ethereum anyone you know was able to pick out the one they wanted there was no like random mint but he built a community around it and people rallied together to see this thing go up like 200x plus from the release price. And then we see a bunch of other people who are inspired by that to create their own collections that don't have these implicit scarcity and rarity aspects. And the market, depending on its mood and the marketing of the project, like, how do you feel, I guess, about like the longevity of this minting and gambling paradigm versus like 
the longevity of, I mean, artists creating collections of like their own art that doesn't have that implicit gambling mechanism attached to it. And like, do you think the longevity of the artists is greater or less than the longevity of like the gambling aspect of the um, profile pictures? So the gambling is always going to be there because humans have gambled since the dawn of time. But the particular mechanics will have to change because of the way the human brain works, right? So basically, you know, the current sort of um, what I call rarity maximalism that's going on where people try to stuff as many traits into a project as possible so everyone can get something rare. I mean, that obviously will wear off, right? Because it's the same with any kind of gambling mechanic or, or a marketing. Once a human brain exposes itself to something too many times, the novelty wears off and people will stop caring about it. So um, definitely like what's currently working will stop working. But the element of, of that sort of gambling will always be there. Someone will always manufacture something new to sort of trigger that uh, that basically that dopamine rush in the human brain, and, and that's the magic of uh, of NFTs and, and blockchain in the sense that the loot box mechanic that that is the current NFT collectible market is is not new, right? It was it was pioneered in in, in games, and what's new in crypto is that there is no legislation, right? Because in a lot of countries, that loot box mechanic was was either banned by the government because it was deemed too gambly, um, or there was just an outcry from consumers that that said you're just taking advantage of basically people's gambling instincts, and, and so companies sort of self-regulated that. But I mean, in in, in NFTs and crypto, there 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 is no regulation. People are free to do whatever they like. So eventually, people will burn out of that. Just like, for example, how many cycles ago? Like two cycles ago, um, when hash masks first released they had their their bonding curve that was like the greatest thing in nfts ever so many projects release of bonding curves and now there's nobody who wants to do a bonding curve anymore because <laughs> that just kind of burned itself out and so that'll just happen over and over again basically i think that both the rarity maximalism as you called it as well as the art aspects of a project whatever they they are right the style the um aesthetic and stuff I think they're all, in a sense, they're all red herrings because it's fundamentally still about how the space is being gamified. And to me, I think it's like, if you look at, say, like the punks, it's not, I mean, yes, there are rarity attributes and people say that they like one punk or the other because of, you know, whether they're smoking or have a hat or whatever. But I feel like that's not, that's secondary. They're really attracted to the, the kind of like cachet of the project. And that's for like historical and kind of like sociological reasons, right? It's not so much that they're artistic or like artistically very accomplished, but it's more like they happen, I mean, whatever aesthetic format they have is kind of incidental. And what people are really drawn to is their kind of provenance, right? And I guess in crypto that has a particularly important implication because you you can't um fudge anything that's the virtue of the blockchain like you can verify transactions and you know previous owners and stuff like that and you can even see what people hold so that whole idea of like whatever art you're holding 
it's it's like a relationship that you can't really fudge. And I feel like all the other artistic attributes are somewhat secondary. I don't know. I feel like that's how that that's in a way like the medium native aspect of NFTs, and and that's what gives them that that's what gives them the value that they have. Before we go, final question: Who is your favorite NFT artist or project? I'll talk about my two favorite NFT artists, and then I will touch on a project as well, because it's impossible for me to just answer one. My two favorite artists in the NFT space are Killer Acid and Pop Wonder. They both have a uh, cartoonish, psychedelic, almost like a comic-y vibe to their work. I think I'm the biggest Killer Acid 101 holder. Like I would say I'd give him the edge between the two but they're very close. Um, I I love them both. And my favorite project is the punks. Like it started everything for me, started everything for a lot of people in the community that the punks discord, it still has, it's not what it was when we were smaller, but it's still there. Like the community is just something special. They taught me early on to like always be honest and authentic and like not afraid to be yourself and give your opinion. And I just really look up to a lot of the guys and girls from that discord who helped me on my journey when there was nothing in return for them other than just like being a good person. And it's really kind of inspired me and the way I try to go about acting in the space and treating new people and, you know, embracing community. So yeah, I would say favorite project is the punks and my favorite artists are uh, killer ass and pop wonder. These It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. On this episode of Floyd's Rising. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of Floyd's Rising. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, follow, and give us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you want to reach out to us, our DMs are open. Sliding to our DMs on Twitter at Floor is Rising.